Hey, it's Phil Simon. My new book is out now. It is called The Nine, The Tectonic Forces Reshaping the Workplace. It's my best work to date, and I hope that you'll check it out. Thanks. Am I turning you on? No. What if I undo this button? Good night, Homer. What if I talk like this? Conversations about collaboration, episode 61. Lucas Miller joins me today. Like me, he wears quite a few hats. The cognitive scientist teaches at UC Berkeley and researches productivity. We talk about technology, how we're wired, his upcoming class at section four, and get this, cuddle hormones. Let's get it on. Lucas, where does this pod find you? Um, I am coming from my home office right now in San Francisco. I'm back and forth between Berkeley nowadays, but finally with in-person travel coming back slowly, COVID is coming to an end, although who knows at this point when it will officially be over, in-person travel is coming back. Yeah, I never thought I would say this, but I, I can't wait to go to more conferences, although I know you've done a lot of speaking since all this went down, primarily based upon the work that you're doing. Can you at a high level summarize um, a lot of your research and findings? Sure, absolutely. So I'll do a Quick intro. Uh, I'm a cognitive neuroscientist by training. That's my background. So firmly rooted in the research behind how the brain works best and different tools that we can use to hopefully improve its health and performance. Nowadays, I do most of my work in the business school over at UC Berkeley, the Haas School of Business there. And my work, along with the work of Dr. Sahar Youssef, um, our lab is called the Becoming Superhuman Lab, is really about how do we take what we know from the neuroscience world, from the biology world, and use that to help people who are knowledge workers. So folks like us who use their brains for a living, that's pretty much what we do. We're Olympic athletes from the neck up. How do we use that knowledge to help people get more work done, get their most important work done in less time with less stress? So that's what my life is like today, a combination of teaching and doing research at the university, and then doing a variety of talks, keynotes, programs, companies all over the world to help them improve the way we work, mostly based on biology. Yeah, I find that fascinating because when we were talking last week, you were describing how these tools are fairly new and I'm completely with you, but I've also, we were talking about this, um, said many times that we love to blame the tools because they can't blame us back, right? And how I think we pretty much agree, but I'd love to get your reaction uh, when someone says, I need to respond to this immediately, I say, well, no, you don't. And if it, you do, that's a management slash culture issue. There are a million different ways, I'm exaggerating, but a lot of different ways in, in certain name of tool that you could shut off notifications. And I am no neuroscientist, but allow you to focus because multitasking is bullshit. So you're partly right there on the management versus individual problem. But before... I comment there, I just want to take a step back just to house the conversation in terms of what my thesis is or where biology even comes to this question, right? Why are we talking about biology in the context of communication, right? What's that link? And the real thesis that I have and many biologists have is that the way we work today, all the tech we use, that's all new. We didn't have that 10 years ago. Now we're working with different tools. We're working remote. There's no nine to five anymore. We have open offices, right? We have all this new stuff. But if you actually look at our brains and our bodies, they haven't evolved that much. Evolution doesn't happen that quickly. You know, I, I joke 
with a bunch of different clients, especially people who have, who have kids. If evolution worked faster, you know, our kids maybe might grow a third arm to hold their iPhones, but it doesn't because evolution takes a while. So we have this predicament. We have really old hardware and we're trying to run modern software on it. So that's the thesis. That said, we still have to adapt. We still have to figure it out. We still have to get by with these tools and stay connected and be productive. So to your point about how it's not an individual problem, it's more of a management problem. My answer is yes, but it depends. So I'll say yes, because it absolutely is a management and culture problem. If the expectation is, hey, here's a Slack account, here are your credentials, and now you're kind of plugged in to all the comings and goings and thoughts of the whole org. And we expect you to respond immediately. Well, that's a problem because then people are just constantly monitoring all day, whether it's urgent or not, and they can't actually do their work. That said, I've seen plenty of cultures that use Slack and they say, hey, you're totally free to set your status to busy, to not check for an hour. You have that freedom. We're giving you permission. I do it too as a manager or as an exec. And then people say, okay, they try it. And then they just start checking Slack within a minute or two, right? So it's, it's both management and culture, but you remove all those constraints, all those expectations, and we still see individuals engaging with Slack and many of these tools as if they're addicts. To me, it seems like these tools can accentuate many of the biases that you're more familiar with than I am. And I remember taking COG Psych when I was 19 years old and being fascinated by how I could, with I think it was a loci method, map 30 things in my head, pen down and remember them. Uh, and subsequently have read, I don't know, a couple dozen books about Psych. And so I do find it fascinating. So in a way, I understand how someone would want to chime in first, right? Or last because of recency bias, the same way that you'd want to be close to manager in a meeting because of proximity bias. Talk to me a little bit about how these tools can be used for better or worse with respect to your background in, in um, cognitive psych. Sure. Well, I'll say there are two main, not really biases, but human instincts that these tools take advantage of. The first one is our reward circuitry. Just the fact that human beings love dopamine. We're dopamine junkies. For pretty much 99 plus percent of our existence on this planet, humans needed to survive, to find things like food, resources, a mate, water, shelter, now, not later. There was no such thing as delayed gratification. Everyone's working on the urgent, not the important. So we evolved and our brains evolved to be really short-term oriented, to seek dopamine quickly, frequently, and for as little effort as possible. And we still have those brains. And so most of these tools, phones, Slack, they're designed to give you quick hits of dopamine to take advantage of that natural hard wiring for fast reward and avoiding the pain of sitting and doing something for an hour without access to distractions or entertainment. Number two, the second bias these tools take advantage of is the fact that humans, even though we feel like we're now evolved and different and we're more self-reliant and self-sufficient, all these things, we're still deeply, deeply social creatures. Human beings are not actually that competitive physically. Now, we're not that tall or strong. Our teeth and our nails are not that sharp. You know, up against a lion, tiger, or a bear, we're going to get destroyed. And so we evolved to be deeply collaborative 
to talk to each other, to strategize. And we still have that wiring. We still have those brains. So you take a bunch of social creatures, and especially in the context of the pandemic, you separate them all and you say, well, we need to, to stay connected. We need to somehow stay together. You introduce a tool like Slack or Microsoft Teams, and now you have this bias of, I don't want to let down my pack, right? How do I prove that I'm a good pack member? How do I prove that I'm a good team member? Well, if people can't see me, I need to prove that I'm working, prove that I'm at the table, that I'm staying on top of things. So I'll just do it by being hyper-responsive and checking and answering to everything as fast as humanly possible. Those are a couple of different biases that we're seeing at play in you know, the behavior that we see, but also behind the design of how these tools are used and how they drive higher engagement. Is the problem more acute with folks who may have started their gigs post-pandemic? So they don't have the chops. They haven't built the relationship. No one knows who they are. So there might be a little bit more communicative, for lack of a better term, than that person needs to be. I would say absolutely. For newly onboarded people, there's definitely pressure to hit the ground running, not let things slip. It's also a bigger problem for those who are newer into the workforce or Gen Z. Folks who have, you know, outside the context of work, I'll be honest, a terribly unhealthy relationship with their devices and anything digital, it's way worse for them. Now, it's one thing to know you have a problem and be trying to manage it. It's another to not even know you have a problem and that all of the exhaustion and all of the burnout and all of the isolation you feel is because of how you're using your tools. I was listening to Scott Galloway's pod last Thursday, and I forget the name of the woman, but she's at a company or the founder of a company called Koa. And she was talking about how she was reading a study or I guess some story of two 13-year-olds sitting next to each other on a couch, texting each other. And oh, yeah. I heard that and said, whoa. And if that's the future, as much as I enjoy asynchronous communication, I mean, I, it's just one part of it. I know when I was researching the new book, I came across a framework from 1984 about how there were these two dimensions of communication or collaboration, sync versus async, in-person versus remote. And to the extent that we're still trying to figure some things out, and to your point, our brains predate Slack or Teams by, oh, I don't know, however many hundreds of thousands or millions of years, um, we lump it all together and don't know when it is time to say, you know what, this is asynchronous, it's not urgent, you probably want to be more thoughtful versus this is a difficult conversation. Uh, ideally, I'd like to have it in person, but at the worst case scenario, let's have it via Zoom. That way I can see your expression because if I remove all the context, I could walk away with a very different or a completely erroneous message. No, it's totally true. We have we have time and place now. There's this two by two grid, so many different options, so many different preferences. And I get it. I get why people are struggling because it used to just be synchronous and in person. That was it. And then when work was done, you left it at work. And so now we have all these advantages of being connected. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. I don't want to live in any earlier time. We live in the best time in the history of humanity's trajectory. But a lot of people are struggling. We're less productive, we're less efficient, we're more stressed, we're more burned out than ever before because a lot of the tools that promised to make us more creative, connect us, create more collaboration have actually done the opposite. Now, I'm optimistic, but we have to be intentional about how we're using tools 
and how we decide which types of collaboration are best, what are the pros and cons of this, and so on. Yeah, I agree with you about intentionality, and it's a subject that's come up on the pod before. I just question the extent to which people recognize it's a problem because it might have always been, to your point, this lack of options right, might have been beneficial in as much as we didn't have to think about that, that grid or which bucket fell into which one. But now we do have these options, and I often think that I agree with you. I wouldn't want to go back to 1998 with IRC or the Madman era with CCs and letter inter-office envelopes with the little string things I remember. I mean, so much gets lost, but it's, you know, say what you will about that era, at least in some, to some extent, it was simpler. Absolutely. And I would say most people don't know the root cause of any problem. They're aware of symptoms. You can ask them, you know, what's, what are challenges? What's going on? They'll just describe symptoms. You know, that we have too many meetings or, you know, I have too many things I need to process in Slack. They can't get to the root cause. But most people are open to a model, you know, start really simple and build from there of why things are the way they are, what's changed and what hasn't, and a couple steps that we can take to move in a better direction. And I would say of all things, the number one piece to really nail for folks is synchronous versus asynchronous. Now, don't even bring the remote or in-person piece in yet because for the next year, we're not going to figure that out. All these companies are pretending like they have a hybrid plan in place. They don't know. They're just saying, we're coming back at this date. It's 3-2 because we're copying Google. We have no idea, right? And they're prepared to change and adapt over time. But the synchronous versus asynchronous piece I think we can do some work there because most people will agree some things are better live and some things are okay or more efficient, not live. Mm-hmm. I think it was a couple months ago, Apple or Microsoft or both of them said flat out, we're giving up trying to predict because it makes us look bad. It puts these false um, signposts out there and then we miss them. We lose credibility. Uh, it's, it's irritating folks. It's just plus I mean, it's so tough to predict even now, although you know, crossing a fingers, because I, I agree, everything can't be synchronous. There are benefits to doing things in person from a lot of the reading that I've done. The companies may take a lot of the money that they've spent or will be saving on real estate and invested into offsites, not the cheesy kind, right? But actual team bonding stuff, because if you are only a Slack avatar, you know, where is your emotional connection to the company, right? And would you leave to go someplace else for an extra 5% versus, well, you know, I really like it here. I like my colleagues. I've got the flexibility. Yeah. 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 I, have, I do have one piece on the in-person card because I know a lot of people in their minds, you know, managers and leaders, they're trying to figure out what's the office for? That, that question keeps going around. And for many, they're trying to come up with, a set of activities or some kind of reason for people to come back. They want people back, but they they need reasons. And I would say from a biological perspective, the number one reason it's important to bring back some elements of in-person is trust. Businesses, teams, cultures, any project that's lifted off the ground and done anything of impact is built on a foundation of trust, trust between people. And in order to get trust, you need the release of certain hormones and neurotransmitters. We know this. You need oxytocin. You need other ones, but oxytocin is one of the big ones 
It's sometimes known as the trust hormone, the love hormone, the cuddle hormone, whatever, but it's essential for getting people on the same page. And then once they're there, making sure we get to where we're going as fast as possible. It's very tough to get that remote. And the reason is one of the biggest reasons, which is people will be surprised, but in hindsight, it makes total sense. You can't make eye contact. Think about right now. Okay. Where are you looking? At a screen. You're looking at a screen, right? You're not looking at my eyes. If you try to look at my eyes, where do you look? At the screen. You, you kind of pause. You don't even know, right? We still haven't figured this piece out. Mm-hmm. We still haven't figured out how to make eye contact in a remote world. And the problem with that is trust, knowing if someone's on the same page as you, knowing if someone is like you, is based on connecting in the moment and having proper eye contact. That's how we're wired. We can't get around it. So especially for new teams, for newly onboarded people, for people who don't have a strong relationship yet, because it's impossible to make eye contact and so your brain's going, does Phil trust me? Does Phil hate me? Did I just offend him? What's going on? Why can't we make eye contact? A lot of debate and strategy and bonding and all this stuff either won't happen remote or it will just take three to five times longer because you're pretty much going uphill. There's a physiological battle you need to fight to get that foundation of trust that teams and companies need to actually move forward and do anything worthwhile with. Fascinating stuff. Back to your question, what's the office for? I was reading a Wall Street Journal article a couple of weeks ago about how, at least in the eyes of some researchers or academics, it needs to be a clubhouse, right? Less a place where you're actually working. In fact, some of the companies I've read about have specifically said, we want not a whole lot of actual individual cubicles, maybe a few, right? Maybe everything old is new again. Maybe you've probably seen these sort of uh, retro phone booths. So if you need to make a call, which, which I kind of get, strike me as kind of cool. Um, but uh, what's your thought on that? The office being a clubhouse versus a place where you would actually do traditional work. I like the idea of making the office about in-person interaction and about meeting people and having it feel more like a place where people can come together, more like a community. The term clubhouse, you know, obviously I originally think of what now is a Twitter feature and it's kind of like this status club and people who should or should not be talking about topics are talking about them and sharing their opinions. But I do resonate with asking the question, what's the office for? And then once you have that answer going, what type of space do we need to build or create to increase the probability that all that stuff happens? And so setting it up so that it's a gathering place so that people can meet new people, mentor each other, learn from each other is a phenomenal approach to answering this question of why do we need an in-person presence? What are we going to do with our real estate? The only caveat I would give is if you use terms like clubhouse and community, it's really easy for CEOs, especially your leaders to give into this, in my opinion, just complete bullshit saying, which is we're a big family. You know, come back. We miss you. Come back into the office. We want to see you in person. Companies are not families, and they shouldn't be. They're teams. I think uh, Hastings from Netflix a couple of years ago specifically came out and said that. Right? Yeah. We don't want to mislead you. And I thought, oh, you know what? It takes some cojones to say that because, to your point, it's one of these vacuous uh, aphorisms from a, C- a CEO. Our customers and our you know, employees are our biggest assets, really. So why do you treat them a certain way? 
it just, it, you become numb to that type of um, maxim. Yeah. Yeah. It's important to be clear and honest mm-hmm. and companies are not families. People have their families. They have their friends. They chose those. They're choosing to work for a company to do something meaningful, to get paid, to learn, to grow. And it's a team and teams definitely need to meet in person. And I'm, I'm very optimistic about what the next year is going to bring us. It's going to take a lot of experimentation to figure out what works. It's not one size fits all. And we'll see what we learn out of this whole crisis and shift to remote or shift to hybrid, excuse me. But what I will say, and this is something that everyone should keep in mind is we had a crisis. We didn't anticipate it. It caused a lot of suffering, a lot of stress, a lot of burnout, but humans always improve through crisis. Humans, our institutions, our businesses, and some trends that were going to take probably a decade to unfold, improving education, improving access. Telemedicine, e-commerce. Oh my God, everything. Remote work, right? It was going to take a decade or so to finally figure it out. Why not have a forcing function to figure it out in six months versus 10 years? That's what Elon Musk would do. He would say, okay, how long do you need? People would say two years. Like, Great, build a damn tunnel tomorrow in LA. Let's make it happen. Let's go fast. So there's something to be said for that. We're in a really lucky position coming out of this. Oh, 100%. And the more that I read about WeWork, I think it was Reeves Wilderman's, don't quote me on the name, book about how it was this big party. I kind of think in a way, even though that was a house of cards, it never should have been worth, I think, at $1.40 billion when it was just selling desks. Yep. Um, this it's notion. A tech it's a tech company, though, remember. Oh, of course. Right. Well, <laughs> well we, yeah, that'd be an interesting AI discussion as well. But, but, but I, I, I do think it's interesting that you know, people were really committed to the, the vision of, of Newman. Now, he was kind of off of his rocker, doing all sorts of crazy shit. But this notion that you wanted to be in a place, I, I think there is a massive opportunity there, especially when you think about only coming in twice a week, right? Would you necessarily be saying, look, I need to leave at 430 because I have to get home every day versus, all right, you know, I'm only here twice. Is it that big of a deal if I'm there until six o'clock, especially since maybe with my partner, I'm sharing the child pickup responsibility or something like else, right? I mean, if it's going to be only two or three days a week, which I guess from a lot of the surveys, that's where the people's sweet spot, you know, give or take. I've seen very few people at the extremes, right? I always want to come in the office or I never want to come in the office. Yep. And then you're just debating. In fact, I think it was... Um, uh, some uh, research I was reading a couple of weeks ago, some company had polled a bunch of other companies and decided that the average was 1.5 days you wanted to be in the office and the days that employers were offering kept creeping up to about 1.2. So they're really not that far apart. But if you are coming in, you know, could it be something that's, I hate to use the F word, but borderline fun, right? You know what? I'm so glad we didn't do this over a bunch of Zoom calls because I would have been fried by two o'clock. I think that's where we're going. And it will depend on the function. For example, if you're in sales or engineering, I mean, roughly the research and the data you're citing is right. People are shooting for about two days in the office. And some new data, actually, because the pandemic has just gone on way too long, now suggests it's about half, half, hmm. two and a half days in, two and a half days out, which obviously is impossible. So it's roughly two, three days a week in the office. I guess you could Although, do one week in, one week off, but what? yeah, whatever. It doesn't make sense to say, okay, it's 12 o'clock, goodbye. You're, you're there, you might as well stay. Exactly, exactly. Although, depending on the function, 
from a bottom up perspective, you know, from teams deciding to make this policy their own, we will see variants. We'll see sales teams shoot for three or four, especially if they're hyper growth, they need to be learning and hearing from each other all the time. They'll make that call. Engineering teams, some in IT, legal, right? If you have a bunch of attorneys spread out all over, they don't need to be in. They just need a quiet space for concentrated work. So they may decide once a week or we'll fly in a week once a quarter. Right. And that will be our in-person time. And then otherwise, we're just executing on our own. Yeah. I've also read a bit about satellite offices. So you may have one hub and a bunch of these other, I won't call them spokes, but you know, satellite offices in which, you know what, I, I don't want to schlep to San Francisco. I don't want to battle the traffic, but is there a co-working space we could rent out every couple of weeks to do a half-day meeting? Absolutely. Yeah. WeWork's, WeWork's model has legs now. As a... We're selling flexible space. We're not a visionary AI company, but there is massive demand for space because people don't want to completely manage their real estate presence, but people and employees want that option. And there are all sorts of reasons why we need to be back in person or why we can get benefits biologically from being in person. Yeah. Last October for a company in Brazil, I recorded a one day data visualization class for the second time. And because of COVID and all that's going on, I, I could not fly down to Porto Alegre. So I did it in a local co-working space. And I got to tell you, it was awesome. There's no way I wanted a film crew in my house. Um, it was professional. Um, I got to say, I you know, wouldn't want to do that necessarily every day, particularly if I'm working with people on a regular basis. But I mean, it, I, I bought it. I mean, it, 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 I think economically, I don't know what people would have done before co-working spaces, but maybe rent out a hotel room or something like that. But who knows if they've got the AV or the internet's fast enough or blah, blah, blah. I mean, you've got a place that specifically says we've got high-speed internet access, basically coffee and everything you would want in a traditional office, but it isn't a traditional office. Absolutely. I mean, with a hotel too, you may have to stay there. Who knows if it's available? It's 300 bucks. The the model post failed IPO and Newman going out is absolutely there. And with some sound management and diligent keeping costs low, will absolutely take off as they partner with organizations to figure out how do we offer flexible space on an ad hoc basis. Yeah. Speaking of classes, tell me a little bit about what you're doing with Section 4. Sure. So uh, I mentioned at the very start, our lab and our class at Berkeley is called Becoming Superhuman. We did not come up with that name because we're not actually business people or marketing professionals. The first name was called the Science of Productivity and Human Performance, since that's both of our backgrounds and the lab that we came from. So our students went, you need something catchier, you need a better value prop, let's call it Becoming Superhuman. Because really, everything in this class we talk about is how do we focus better, increase our energy, have more effective sleep, and also just beyond the science, how do we live a meaningful life? What's actually important to you and why? It's not necessarily scientific, but it's the type of reflection work you need to do if you want to live an intentional and purposeful life. So in short, we've now taken that class, which is about seven weeks long. It runs almost a full semester with our MBA students at Cal. And we've packaged it up into a two to three week sprint. So it's a condensed, fast paced, intensive version of the class. And we're in the process of making that open access. So it's not just something that you need to pay 
a lot of money in an MBA program to take. We want to give this to people who are motivated and want to learn the same material and make change in their lives. And we're actually partnering with Scott, who you mentioned, and his new education company, Section 4, to, I believe, in May, roll out our first open access version of that sprint. So if, if, you know, if, you're, if you know who Scott is or you're trying to take classes on the side, it's going to be really fun. And pretty much the best of the best and the first half of the class will be packaged into that sprint. So we're, we're super excited. We're playing with the format. It will be interactive. Um, and yeah, that'll come out, I believe, in May. The, the timing couldn't be better from my perspective because as someone who's paid a pretty, clo- pretty close attention to what's going on, it seems like a lot of people have asked themselves fundamental questions, right? Now that I don't have to commute, I think pre uh, pandemic, the average commute was 35 minutes per day each way in this country, mm-hmm. maybe less in, in Europe and other places. But I mean, I know folks, I mean, even on a personal level, I've had an hour and a half commutes each way. Yeah, it's three hours a day, five days a week, 15 hours spent with trains, planes, and automobiles. And you're not doing work during that commute. No. I mean, you have a private driver, which I don't think many people have. I chopper. Um, I'm kidding. Uh, no, but it's just, uh, what do you do with that opportunity? I mean, I, I was reading, um, I think one of us in the journal, the times doesn't matter, but an article on how the number of new businesses is at a 40 year high and, and most won't succeed. And then you have people like me. And at, when the pandemic hit, I was still a college professor at Arizona state. And I still had my LLC set up for the last 20 years. Sometimes it was active. Sometimes it wasn't like it was, I was working a full-time gig, but I didn't start a new business. I just amped up the previous one because I said to myself, what do I really want to do? And was writing and speaking. And I'm not saying that'll be that way forever, but to the extent that the the pandemic, going back to your point about accentuating trends may do that even more. So is it necessarily weird anymore to only work someplace for two years? I can remember working in HR back in the day, looking at a resume, someone worked at five companies in 10 years, you'd throw the resume away because you'd say that person is insane. Right. And now if you stay somewhere for 10 years, some HR folks will say, oh, don't hire him. He's institutionalized. He only knows how one one company or one um, management team does things. It's just it's fascinating the change that's taking place and how I, I am like you optimistic when we hopefully come out of this, fingers crossed, will work be qualitatively better. I like to think that not everywhere, but in many places it will be. Jury's out on whether it will be qualitatively better. In my opinion, it's going to get worse before it gets better. But we certainly have more options now. It's easier to switch roles. It's easier to switch industries. It's more accepted to not have to figure out right after college, okay, I want to be in sales. I want to work for IBM. I'm going to stay there for 20 years. They're going to pay for my MBA or JD. They're going to give me a pension. We're going to take care of each other. You don't have to do that anymore. You can make a call based on what you think is a good fit for you what you think is interesting. And if it doesn't pan out, screw it, reinvent yourself. And that's a good thing for society because people who are young, you know, reasonably don't know everything about themselves, what they're good at. Maybe they're not good at anything yet. That's fine. You need to actually do stuff to get good. So post COVID, we're going to see people take on more side projects, side businesses, and hold their companies to a higher bar in terms of what work there looks and feels like. Yeah. Interesting stuff. I'll get you out of here on this. 
Lucas, what book are you currently reading? The book I am currently reading is by Peter Lynch. It's called One Up on Wall Street. And Peter Lynch, for those not familiar, worked at Fidelity in the late 1970s and 1980s and was famous for running one of the largest mutual funds of all time, the Fidelity Magellan Fund. Um, in my time outside of teaching and research, um, I'm an avid investor. And so when I do have free time, it's mostly spent reading the works of famous, usually older or dead investors to learn about how they approached looking at companies, their philosophies. So that's what's, that's what's currently sapping up my time. And, you know, when it comes to read to reading, since, you know, I'm, I'm sure you're in the same camp, Phil, um, I've moved from reading more to reading less and rereading the same things. Hmm. I've, I've found that, you know, there's so much more that's being published and that's a good thing. More people can get their ideas out there, but because it's easier, it also means that on average, the quality of the ideas and the amount of time that goes into any publication is less. It's just that that's how it works. We don't have gatekeepers. So I've, I've shifted towards rereading a lot of old things. Interesting things that I've read before and liked and you know, can maybe get something different from the second or third time around. Yeah, there's a really good book that came out, I think, about 2006 or 2007, The Cult of the Amateur by Andrew Keene. And he comes across a little bit as a pretentious English wanker. Okay. But in hindsight, this explosion of UGC or user-generated user content is definitely a mixed bag. I mean, back then he was writing about MySpace and you know, Facebook had started, but it hadn't taken over the world yet. Um, I, I agree with you. It's, I mean, even traditional publishers, and I've done so many books with them, I can't even remember, but uh, they used to do more of a proper developmental edit, right? Is this a structurally sound book? Now, in many cases, they expect a structurally sound book and they'll do proofreading. They don't want to get sued, right? They don't want to make, want to make sure there are no typos, but you will get a lot of direct out there. And I'm not going to throw any authors under the bus here, but I've read a few and I said to myself, how the did this thing get published? Uh, this, this is objectively awful, right? Yeah. And to your point there, other times I'll, I'll come across a book and go, this is amazing. How the hell did I know about this before? And to your point, it's because I forget the number, but I think it's over just business books alone. I remember this stat from a book I read called Merchants of Culture. And in 2009, I think 11,000 business books came out and mm -hmm. something like 62 moved more than 10,000 copies. I'd argue that that's even tougher to do now. And anyway, um, it's just, uh, you know, it's, I think why word of mouth is so essential. If someone you trust says, oh, you should check out this book. I was writing down Peter Lynch because I, you read a lot more investing books than I do, but I'm always up for a good read. It is, it's, it's tougher to get noticed. Um, but if you do, I guess there's more satisfaction. There's, it's absolutely a winner take all, you know, power law distribution in, in books and music and videos. Movies. Yeah, exactly. It's, you know, it's easy to publish, but it's hard to get noticed. But when you do, you can take off and go from zero to a hundred real fast. Um, and I think the challenge for people is filtering. What do you choose to read or listen to or watch? You know, it's, it's a great thing that we have more. And because we have more, there's objectively more good ideas out there, more books, more music, more movies, but it's in a sea of noise and it's really tough to filter. And 
if you rely on the filters that we have with our phones and social media platforms and some of these tools we've been talking about, the filter is just new or now. That's it. And if you're not careful, you we all just kind of get sucked into this never-ending present. What's new? What's happening now? Is that the most important? I don't know. Historically, things that are old and stay relevant generally are more useful. You know, if they've stuck around this long, there, there's probably something there. There's probably some substance there. It's a tough challenge, though. Something tells me that you're an RSS guy. I've, I go back and forth. Okay. When it, when it comes to blogs and people on Twitter, you know, I, I have periods where I explore and I go broad and I try to learn, you know, okay, are there new people? Are there new blogs? Are there new labs? And then I get feeds and I do that for a couple months and then I shut off mm. and go, okay, out of all this new stuff that's come in, what's really the best. And then I just exploit reading those pieces, those studies, talking to those people. And I focus for a while and then six or 12 months will pass. And I go, okay, I'm getting siloed again. There's gotta be new stuff out there. And then I explore again and I go back and forth between those. Cause I can't manage staying on top of everything all the time. I'd go crazy. It's interesting that you use the word explore. I was just reading, um, Oh gosh, um, uh, range David Epstein's uh, book, and yeah. he's got a newsletter. It's a fascinating book. Sounds like you've heard of him. And in his newsletter, he was writing about this academic uh, study on exploring and then exploiting. Right. So I don't know what I want to learn. I'm going to learn a lot about a bunch of different things now that I take that knowledge. And in my case, I tend to uh, put that knowledge into a book. Other people put it into starting a company or, or doing mm -hmm. something else. It, so to your point, it, it's fascinating in that regard, but I know that I'm missing stuff, right? And there are times I'll put out a book and someone might say, well, how did you not know about this? Or even one of my favorite bands, Marillion, I discovered them in 2010, 2011. They started in the mid eighties and I'm thinking of my early eighties. And I said to myself, how the hell did I not know about these folks? And better late than never, but you know, I could have been going to concerts when I had a head of hair. Oh my God. You can't stay on top of everything. It's it impossible. Good stuff, Lucas. I really enjoyed it. Absolutely. Me too. Remember that these episodes drop every Tuesday. However, if you'd like early access to them, you're in luck. I've launched a Patreon page for this podcast at, wait for it, patreon.com forward slash Phil Simon. I've set up a number of different tiers, including early access and podcast sponsorships. Thanks for listening to Conversations About Collaboration. If you like what you heard, and how can you not? Please download, like, and or subscribe. See you next time. Remember that these episodes drop every Tuesday. However... If you'd like early access to them, you're in luck. I've launched a Patreon page for this podcast at, wait for it, patreon.com forward slash Phil Simon. I've set up a number of different tiers, including early access and podcast sponsorships. Thanks for listening to Conversations About Collaboration. If you like what you heard, then how can you not? Please download, like, 
and or subscribe. See you next time.